0: swept me off my
1: feet you erased my history. You took all
2: of Hello. Me and I'm Patricia McLean, and this is Let's Talk about it. Four years ago when the arrest of my husband of 29 years for domestic violence hit the news, women everywhere, including my hairdresser, mother of my daughter's best friend, And my best friend's daughter started confiding to me about the domestic abuse in their lives. I hadn't known about them and they hadn't known about me. I realized domestic abuse is everywhere, but no one knows about it because no one talks about it. Finding Our Voices launched on Valentine's Day 2019 as an exhibit in my hometown Camden, Maine Library of photo portraits of 14 survivors half of them local, with audio of their voices and documents of the abuse. Today, we are a non-profit organization committed to breaking the silence of intimate partner abuse, conversation by conversation, community by community. You can find us on the web at findingourvoices.net. The guests on today's program are Eve, Allison, and Sarah. Eve broke her silence publicly last fall on a Finding Our Voices survivor panel at the Holocaust and Human Rights Center in Augusta during our three-month exhibit there. She is now one of 21 survivors on Finding Our Voices four-foot banners touring downtown business windows, now in Ellsworth, Machias, Calais, and Boothbay Harbor. I met Allison when she brought dessert to our table at the Nina June restaurant and I asked her about the purple ribbon tattooed on her arm, which it turned out she had just gotten. I wrote a newspaper column about her estranged husband being sentenced to less than six months in jail for strangling her, then breaking bail conditions and strangling her again. The update is he was released from jail a month early. With Allison receiving no notification of this from the district attorney's office. Allison is speaking publicly here for the first time about the abuse. Sarah owns the Camden business Global Packing and Shipping and is past president of the Chamber of Commerce. She is breaking her public silence here about the abuse of her relationship for the first time. I want to explain a few names and terms used in this episode. VARDA is a voice-activated radio dispatch alarm system. DHHS is Department of Health and Human Services and the state agency concerned with child abuse and neglect. Deferred deposition is a deal offered to perpetrators by the District Attorney's Office. Megan Maloney, the District Attorney in Kennebec County, told me she does not offer these deals to domestic abusers. With a deferred deposition from the Knox County courts, my ex-husband pled guilty to four counts of domestic abuse, including domestic violence assault, and after two years of quote unquote good behavior, the domestic violence charge was wiped off his record, as if the violence had not occurred, and his only punishment was a fine of $3,000. According to the assistant district attorney in charge of this case, Christopher Fernald, this was right in line with domestic abuse sentencing in their office. A PFA is a protection from abuse order. It is most commonly granted to a victim for two years. You have to prove fresh misconduct for it to be renewed and once dropped by the victim, often due to pressure from the abuser it is very hard to get back. Dwight Burtis is a sheriff and the domestic violence coordinator for Knox County. Stephanie Late is the victim and witness advocate in the Knox County District Attorney's Office. If there are no ears to hear, our voices don't go far. So thank you for listening. Now, let's talk about it. Okay, I, might, I might, might be good. Why can we not see her? Allison? Al- Allison, are you there? Okay, hey, everybody. We did it. Wait, wait, wait. What happened? I lost you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: My name is Eve. I am divorced. I was in a 17-year marriage. I have six children, and I currently have a PFA, that I'm hoping to renew when it expires in
3: August. Sarah McLean, ironically not related to Patricia. (laughs) I was never married to my abuser. I had been married previously, and I have two children with my ex-husband. My ex-husband is probably one of my best friends and biggest supporters, so I'm very grateful. We co-parent very, very well. I got into a relationship with a gentleman we were off and on again for about four years. We have one child together, is three, and it was mostly the gaslighting, emotional, mental abuse. There were two very specific physical encounters. My protection order is up here in June, and I will be renewing that. We have been in court battles for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. It is ongoing. I have a VARTA system in my house. I've got cameras everywhere. He's a scary guy. He had a tracking device on my car for months after he left. He's attempted to take our son from his daycare at the Y. Uh, in Rockport, the Y had to shut down, lockdown. The police were called. It's, yeah. he's unpredictable. I'm sure that's a common thread for all of oh. us. And so that's what makes it h- the hardest. My focus right now is on litigation abuse. When we were together, nobody spoke up. As soon as we were apart, all of a sudden people were like, yeah, I always thought this or Me too. Thought this yeah. happened. Me or- too.
2: I thought that Don was like the most respected person around, like beloved. And everyone was so honored to have them, excited to have him in their community. And I, how many people since I left him were like, Oh yeah. I can't stand the guy. And also, yeah, we knew something was going on. It's crazy. I never heard that from anyone. And I hear yeah. it all the time. Allison, soon to be.
1: I've endured a lot of physical, a lot of mental, but I don't really know. It's just been, it's, it's a battle. I'm trying to get divorced. I have a two-year PFA, hopefully getting the VARDA system installed in my house. The one that just came,
3: became free, I think, is going to go to Allison. We just heard this morning. Great. What county are you in, Allison? Knox County. Knox. Okay. The one that I have is from Waldo. Knox borrowed it from from Waldo.
2: How ridiculous oh, well, is that situation that we don't have enough VARTAs in our, our county? And most community? counties
3: in our state don't have them at all. I had to explain to the judge what a VARTA system was.
1: My life's in the air, it's in shambles. I'm trying to pack, trying to find somewhere to move. He's scheduled to be released from jail on the 21st of May. My house, I'm closing on my house on June 5th, so there's a little overlap. And then obviously, rentals are not really that available right now come to find out i'm dealing with the kids my oldest who's 7 just thinks that steve is god and he's probably the best person on this world and that's i mean it's her dad so I get it. They're able to have written contact now. She wrote him her first letter and she got a letter back from him pretty quick. She wrote a second one and she hasn't heard back. She checks the mail every day and nothing, nothing, nothing. She's just really angry. I'm not her favorite person at all. She really struggles with talking to me or just even communicating with me about anything. It's all in yelling and just stomping away. And so Mm. those are things that I'm trying to work on with her and just try to like, relearn the right way to handle situations because she hasn't been shown the correct way Mm. Uh, so I can't really blame her for how she handles a lot because I see a lot of Steve in her
2: and it really makes me nervous it's hard it's hard Allison starting with you how is COVID-19 affecting your situation right now with the as as pertains to the Um, and the and, and the abuser
1: yeah, well, I'm at a standstill as far as my divorce, and that puts a lot up in the air as far as you know our financials, who takes care of what, who's doing what, what he's allowed to do and what he's not allowed to do is all just bet on hold, and that's not not good. I mean, and stuck in the house it doesn't make me feel comfortable either. With him getting out of jail and less law enforcement around, and I just feel like he'll he knows and he'll take that to his advantage extremely unpredictable, and
3: it makes me really
2: nervous. Sarah, how about, how about you with COVID-19? How is that affecting your situation?
3: Kind of similar to, to Allison, we had two court dates scheduled in April. They've been pushed to May. He was having supervised visits with his son through home counselors in Rockland, and of course, they're not operating, so the visits are at a standstill His lawyer has been badgering me about finding another way for those visits to happen, which I think is insane how (laughs) it would be illegal, first of all. I just, that blows my mind. So because he hasn't seen his son and our court dates are pushed, and he's still obviously paying his lawyer for... You know, emails and harassment. I worry about his mental state, and (laughs) we're we're a sitting duck. Eve,
2: could you speak to COVID 19 for you now or or to when you were in your situation, what you you imagine it would have been like if you were still with him right now?
0: Oh, good God. Control was always a major issue. So if we were still together, I imagine it would be that much more heightened, you know, as far as what I could do, what I couldn't do, what the kids could do, what they couldn't do. We were already pretty much under his thumb as it was.
2: Sarah, could you explain the courts for you, how they were and weren't helpful? I can remember very clearly
3: sitting in the courtroom. The judge looked at him and said to him, you did this. This has nothing to do with with the young woman sitting in the court here. Wow. Um, This, this is all on you. And no, I will not give you what you're looking for. It was probably time with his son or something, because I have no doubt that you're going to use this child to get back at her. I was sobbing to the point where I could not breathe. My lawyer had to escort me out of the gallery. It was the first time I felt heard and it was one time and I've been in that courtroom 15 times It was Judge Matthews, and I have sat in front of him several more times, and he has been
2: understanding
3: the last few times we've left the courtroom or gotten a ruling from Judge Matthews. He has basically said to my abuser, here's what you can file. Here's what I'm saying, but if you don't agree with me, here's what you could do. And so he's, he's setting my abuser up to continue to use the system to come after me.
2: Yep. He's giving him a blueprint. Absolutely.
3: What would your solution be for that? I feel like there should be some sort of less emphasis on keeping things fair between mom and dad, just because our child shares our DNA mm-hmm. <laughs> and more emphasis on what is best for the child. So we had a guardian ad litem involved off and on throughout the case. But as soon as my abuser stopped paying for the guardian, she was gone. And the judge hesitates to bring her back because it costs money. It costs the court money, you mean? No, it costs my abuser money because he's the one that has to pay for it. Does he have the money? Well, here's, here's an ironic piece. My... Abuser has a lien on his properties, it's a promissory note, to his lawyer for $30,000. $30,000 legal bill. And that's from harassing you, right? The legal fees? Now, this is his eighth lawyer. He has had eight in the two and a half years. So the $30,000 is just from last June. At our hearing in June, we figured out that he had spent $75,000 on his previous seven lawyers.
2: And is this money that you're not getting? I mean, does he owe you money?
3: Oh, yeah. He's been ordered to pay less than a third of my lawyer's fees that I accumulated because of the tracking device and his criminal case.
2: I just want to say that that's one thing that really irks me, that on the PFA, for instance, like every court filing, there's always a section that you could tick off. Requesting lawyer fees. I've never been able to get lawyer fees, and it's always directly because of Don' his actions. You know, it's, yeah. it's either harassment or, like, for instance, one example. Part of the divorce settlement is that I was to get the car that he was leasing for me. It was leasing, of course, because it was the control. Like, I never, I never had anything in my name. This is four years ago, and the title is still not in my name. And so it's been court action after court action to try to get him to step up. I can't get my court costs for this. It's costing so much money. It's ridiculous.
3: Absolutely. Court fees. And then the other piece is I file contempt and nothing happens. He was ordered to pay child support of $94 a week. That's all. That's all. And he decided that was too much. So he wasn't going to pay until he could take me back to court and decide what was the appropriate amount, which- Meanwhile, you're not getting your money while this is going on, right? Correct. So my lawyer files contempt against him and he had 30 days to pay or go to jail. We hit the 30 days, the warrant went out for his arrest and, oh, he filed an appeal of the case.
2: He's just playing the system. The system allowed that?
3: Yep. Yep. And that was, gosh, that was almost a year ago.
2: Okay, let me put this to all of you ladies, okay? Do you feel that if the person is an abuser, and there's documentation that the person's an abuser, don't you think that that should play a part in any kind of civil action in the courts? And that, that, that the judge, for instance, in a case like Sarah just said, would look at that and recognize that he's an abuser and recognize this is an abusive tactic because right now it doesn't seem like it is playing a part. Absolutely. I wish we had a special
0: court just for domestic violence, like they do for drugs and and veterans issues. There should be a a melding of the family and the the, um, civic courts. It's just, it's crazy. They're like two different planets
2: plants. And Allison, looking at you, like you're looking at, you know, custodial visitation issues. And how much do you feel will be taken into consideration of, of the fact of the domestic violence to, towards you?
1: I don't know if much of any of it. From what my lawyer says, all he has to do is show an interest in the children and he'll get some sort of visitations. He had never laid a hand on them. My hands are tied, especially where the courts, he did not get charged with a felony domestic violence. That he I'll got probably, charged with that, but he didn't get convicted. They, they, they pled it down didn't to misdemeanor. get convicted of it. I'll forever have to share those children with him and always be like backtracking because he's the one that uses words to manipulate the children. But that's what he's always done. Used words or abused me and then sat down with and
2: cried with her and been like, yeah, I didn't want to do okay. this. So he never laid a hand on the kids and that's mm-hmm. why they're still ha- having him eligible for visitation and custody. How did he affect the kids by what he did to you? How were the kids affected by him? Put it that way.
1: They've seen him almost kill me numerous times. The yelling, always yelling. There were, I, it's hard to find a day that there wasn't some sort of yelling. But yeah, yelling, anything. I think affects them more um, because now it's just me and them at the house. I can't even raise my voice or these kids go into like a spiral. My tone cannot even change a little bit or they just think I'm going to flip out. And that breaks my heart. I feel like the mental, abuse and what they've seen is just as bad, if not worse, as him laying his hands on them.
2: How is that not child abuse to do these things to you and in the household? How is it not child abuse?
1: Well, that's how I ended up with a DHS case was because of this. That's how DHS ended up in my life was from me reporting it in September. And as soon as you report that, then yeah, now I've had DHS
2: in my life. Wow. And Eve, how about you? Do you feel that his abuse to you was considered with visitation? And how is visitation and custody in your life right now?
0: It was really not considered. We were given joint custody. I have physical custody of the kids, but that's because he didn't want it and wasn't able to do it. They see him for a total of about 11 hours a week. We finally have agreed to only exchange the children at the sheriff's office, which I highly recommend. He had been coming to the house to pick up the kids, and that was hell. Other than that, he was granted the same rights as any, you know, perfectly healthy, normal, wonderful parent. My second son, who was 16 at the time, he was furious with me. He could barely stand to look at me. He was the one who was was and is probably the closest to his father.
2: Is the relationship it, with your son mended?
0: Yeah, we're all good now. It took almost a year, I think, for him to come around. But we're no, we're all doing great now.
2: And Sarah, can you speak to how your child has been affected and your worries for your child?
3: Yeah, I don't think that it was taken into consideration, uh, especially with the PFA. The judge that we had said that the tracking device on my car didn't affect the children. And so she refused to put them on the protection order.
2: Wow. Uh, who, who, who was this that did that? I don't remember her name. A woman judge said that. Okay.
3: And I was shocked. My daughter, she was a young teenager at the time, immediately started having anxiety and panic attacks. Ended up putting her in in therapy and on medication. My tween son slept on my floor every night for over a year. He was afraid to leave my side, and so those are the things that I wanted the judge to see to say. How can you tell me my child is not affected by what he did?
2: Did you get to um, tell? Did you get to tell the judge these things?
3: No, because he he fought the protection order, and the, the that's when the judge took the kids off. And then there's nothing I can do after that. He can appeal it, but I can't. I can't appeal his appeal. <laughs> when it came time for deciding custody in the final hearing, which of course isn't final because he's appealed that as well, I was given full parental rights, but it it didn't last long. Uh, yes, I still have custody, but now we're doing supervised visits. He's appealed that and asking for unsupervised time and overnight time. And so that's the uh, court date that's been postponed because of the coronavirus. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen. He was ordered to have a psych evaluation done. Well, he got to pick the doctor. He paid the doctor. And the only people she interviewed was his mother and his sister. And she interviewed me for about a half an hour.
2: Did you see the results of the evaluation? Did you see? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yep. He is, he's perfectly
3: normal he had two episodes one when his wife left him which was before me oh, so so was the victim of that it sounds like and one when I took his son away from him I, I did that.
2: Right. Um, and is that that's in the record now that's like evaluation is part of the part of the court file
3: yes it is yep and the only reason that we are unable to co-parent is because of my perception of our situation.
2: Well, Sarah, did you get a chance to have your own psych evaluation of him, choosing your own psychiatrist? No. For my situation, he got to choose the therapist, and I don't even think the report was made public. So it's, it's bogus, right? I mean, it is absolutely bogus,
3: and I'm, I wonder if it's the same doctor.
2: Sarah, how do you feel the police were or were not helpful to you? I actually never called the police
3: in any of my situations. I was too afraid to. And regret that now, but hindsight, 2020. And why do, you, um, why do you regret that? I think that maybe the process of me separating from him and protecting our child could have happened a lot sooner. It would have it would have made my situation public. I mean, I didn't talk about it even with my own family for a very long time, and certainly, as we said earlier, nobody was coming to me and saying. Hey, you know, he has a pattern of this. This is a dangerous, you know, situation. I'm scared for you. All of those things came out after the fact. He actually called the police on me. It was a quote unquote wellness check of our child. Again, trying to make it sound like you're crazy, right? Yep. So there was a pounding on my door and I hiding in my bedroom with my phone called 911. And it was the 911 operator that said, it's not your ex at the door, it's the police, and you need to go answer the door. That particular officer ended up sitting in a courtroom on the stand uh, in my defense saying, I've never seen a woman so scared in my life okay. that clearly this was a form of my abuser trying to abuse me further.
2: Power and control. Letting yep. him know who's in, who's in control and who has the power and, and even, then
3: certainly the varda system that has been <laughs> uh, allowing
2: me to sleep most nights. Uh what was the process of obtaining that?
3: So gosh, I got to remember because it's been it's been a couple of years. I had a conversation with Tim Carroll who is now our sheriff and he got me in contact with the officer who specifically deals with domestic violence. White I group. Yeah. <laughs> and he came to my house and he set it up and he tested it. And then anytime I was getting nervous or I had a court date coming up or had just had a court date and was feeling a little squirrely, I would call Dwight and he would come and test the system just to make sure that it was still
2: working. And what would you say about his responsiveness, Dwight?
3: Oh, immediate. I always wanted to hug him. (laughs) I just felt like he must've seen the worst of the worst in, in so many people. And yet was so friendly and comforting and and in tune, I felt. I'm glad to hear
2: that for Allison, especially because Allison just heard from him this morning. And Allison, thank you, Sarah. And Allison, can you tell about your experience with the police? Yeah,
1: I've never, ever called the police on Steve. I I don't know why. I'm waiting for the day that I have that answer. My experience with them was, was good. I mean, they had been in and out of this house Numerous times through Steve calling them, it was always, I'm going to, I'm going to kill myself or I'm in the woods with a gun. I don't ever even know what his real reasoning was for calling. I don't know. Can I just Um,
2: ask you something though, Alison, when the police got those calls, did they immediately understand that you were in danger because of the things he was telling them? No, no. Don't you think there's a disconnect there?
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, since we've lived in this house, it's been a little over three years. You know, they've been here close to probably 10 times. I still don't know why I never even said anything, but there was times where they were like, are you ready to talk to me? And I would sit there and be like, no, because Steve's hiding in the basement right now. Like you guys can't find him, but I know where he is. And I am absolutely not saying anything to you right now because he's listening. When I did finally say something, they were more than helpful and tried and did everything that they could to go and arrest Steve at that exact moment. And that was that was nice. And then in my mind, I was just like, well, why didn't I ever think that it, it could be that easy? So Allison,
2: if looking, like if there's a message you could give to the women in there, out there who are, are afraid to call the police or a- in a bad situation, what would you say to them?
1: I would say trust. Trust New Hope for Women. Trust the police that they're gonna try uh-huh. to do anything that they could do to help you as long as you're there and willing to be completely open and honest, no matter how it makes you look. I'm sure I didn't look the best when I finally did say something because I still left out a lot and I still have left out a lot. But I mean, just getting your foot out there and then watching the amount of people that try to help you and support you has been amazing. Like, that's all I can say. I thought for sure, like, I'm going to leave and I'm going to be alone and nobody's going to get it. Nobody's going to understand. Well, why did you stay for eight years? And I've got that question. Absolutely. But I have so much more support from people than I ever thought that I would have. He had that drilled in my head for so long that Mm -hmm. nobody else would love me but him. And just to, just in these few months, I've been like, this is like, I'm like, what he gave me was never love. And even just from friends, I'm like, that's love. It's been pretty amazing. I would just tell every woman to just trust, trust that there is Hope on the other side. Absolutely, there is.
0: Before the divorce, I only um, called a couple of times. The most intensely dangerous situation happened. I did not call the police specifically because I think it was only the day before that the library had chosen our family to represent the library in its uh, fundraising campaign. And so we were going to be in the newspaper, you know, a family photo of all of us as like the really nice family. We homeschooled and we have a police blotter in our paper. And I didn't call the police because I didn't want our, you know, family photo promoting the library next to, you know, his arrest in the police
2: blotter. Uh, So my experiences with the police were, I called in, I called 911 in 1994 at the moment where I thought Don would kill me and they came and he was totally charming.
3: It was amazing how
2: he could go from like a a raging lunatic to like totally calm as soon as they answered the door. And then they about making the arrest. And he told me after that, he had told them that I had almost been arrested because he told them that I was the one who abused him. And then cut to 2015, basically like almost the exact same things happened. And they did arrest him. And I asked Jeffrey Boudreaux why, you know, what's the difference? Because it was like the same incident. And He said that we're, we're trained better now.
3: Most of us, we don't know each other, and here we are sharing some pretty intimate details with each other and the world. And bravo.
2: You are listening to Let's Talk About It, a conversation about intimate partner abuse and a project of the nonprofit Finding Our Voices, which can be found at findingourvoices.net. I'm Patricia McLean, the president and founder of this organization. Let's return now to our conversation with three main survivors, Eve, Sarah, and Allison. Let's talk about our silence. I think
3: a lot of it has to do with pride. You know, I feel like I'm an intelligent and well-educated woman. I am very involved in my community. I have successful children. How, why would I be involved with a man like that, like I was, and and not have enough, I don't know what the word is, I can hear my grandmother say gumption, to walk away. I can remember saying not just to myself, but out loud to others that if my child or my mother or someone close to me was diagnosed with some sort of, you know, mental health piece or, or disorder, gosh, I would I would rally by them. There are things about him that are not quote unquote normal. There's something going on here and I am going to stand by his side and, and I'm going to fix him. I'm going to make him better.
2: <laughs> I relate so much to that because for Don, he told me this, ta- you know, about how he all of a sudden got this enormous fame and people were using him and it was like so traumatic. And so he had these quirks, which included like he was so isolated and he wanted me to isolate with him. But it seemed to me logical that from what he had gone through. And so of course I just wanted to help him and I felt for him. And so I wanted to protect him. And even when he wanted nothing to do with my family and my family would maybe question it, I would protect him and say, he's just had a traumatic time of it. But looking back on it, I think I had as more traumatic childhood than he did, but yep. I was making all these excuses for him about his behavior. When anything
4: first started, I never said anything to anybody. I just always thought, he I know he's bipolar, he's, and I just never wanted to give up on him. His entire family always did. He was in foster care as a child and bounced around. He always told me, the one person that will never give up on me. You're always there for me. That was just always, like, stuck in my head. Like, I'm all he has. Me and the kids are all he has. And he was, at times, getting help. So I was always assuming it was going to get better. I just figured we could drop through it and come out on top. And I don't know why I thought that. But that's what I thought for a long time, that it was going to change and it was going to get better because he loved me. One thing that stands out particularly was a – Paw Patrol Live. We took my kids there, but we didn't even make it inside until, like, he got mad about something. I don't even remember what it was, and then started a big fight with my entire family, and then he stormed off in the car and left me and the kids in Portland. (laughs) Things like that would happen all the time throughout our relationship, and family would voice or friends would be like, what are you doing? Like, this is not good, and I always chose him as soon as I saw him again he you know would be like I'm I'm sorry and I know I need help and you know I love you three yeah always stayed but there was always plenty of people that were trying to tell me but nobody knew what was really going on I always put on the face and I one thing I don't know I feel like I've mastered that I anything can happen and I can go right on to the next and it's fine and giggling and laughing I yeah, I don't know, suppress a lot. It builds up after a while.
2: Think about what that does to us emotionally, maybe even physically, to constantly be, be suppressing all this stuff.
4: He loved to just grab my throat and just like whoosh, whatever was right by, like slam me against the wall or pick me up by my throat and throw me on the bed. Or it, That's usually what it was, it was always just grabbing my throat or like just intimidation or chasing me around the house. But I was never just like hit with a fist or an open hand slap, never that. Yeah, it was always my throat. I don't know why.
2: What's it all about, about like the throat and silencing? I wonder if there's a connection there. Mm-hmm. You can't talk.
3: I was thinking that too. I mean, that's so symbolic, I think.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yep trying to keep you silent.
0: When I was in the marriage, it never even occurred to me that breaking the silence was an option. Like it's I might as well have had a sex change or something. And it was just so I I agree. I
2: agree. I'm with you on
0: that. But in hindsight now I can see why it would have been important to break the silence and why now it is important to break the silence. Because I too am a private person and I wanted to maintain the image of our family as like a really perfect, happy family. And I had been previously married and divorced before I met my kid's father. So that was a real embarrassment. And I said, you know, I've screwed up once before this time, I'm going to get it right. And I'm going to make it work. I didn't want my kids to come from a broken home. It wasn't all bad. There were times that were fun and happy. And I just wanted it to get better. I didn't want to have to sell the house and divide our property and divide custody of the kids and i did have a lot of hope over the years that it would get better my kid's father entered a batterer's intervention class three times he graduated twice and was kicked out once having had six kids i was always either pregnant and or nursing i never felt like in a good position to stand on my own two feet i was afraid too i i saw that there was no way out without either getting seriously hurt. There just was no way out. It wasn't until I actually got an, an inheritance that I saw that I could
3: be financially independent. Kind of similar to what Eve was saying, you know, I'd been divorced once. I had not been in a serious relationship since their father until I met this man. And so to to go through another breakup... Or break up the family was something that I really just couldn't wrap my head around. And then when he did start putting our son in jeopardy, that's when mama bear mode kicked in and I was able to get the protection order. And that, the protection order and having that separation, that allowed me the time to heal because he wasn't in my ear, he wasn't in my face, he wasn't in my home. And that that piece, that's what gave me the time to heal and rebuild strength and find clarity so that I could stay away and do the right thing for our child.
2: Don, if he had not been arrested, I I really feel I'd be either be with him still or I would be dead Mm -hmm. because that's what it was. It was in our whole marriage, I never had the time away from him to really think And then there was one year where I was trying to leave him. I left him about six times and I would get like 150 text messages and phone calls a day. But it was when he was arrested and there was a condition of no contact. That's the only time that I was able to really just start, really realize, like Alison had mentioned before, like it just becomes clearer and clearer the more time you're away from him. And the only other one time when I took a trip away from him, it was like a three day trip. And I remember I really thought about leaving him in that trip because there was this politician, a right-wing politician that was running for president. And I just voiced that I I, I thought that he shouldn't be president. And he just tore into me over that. I'm like, how can I be with someone where I can't even express an opinion? And I I was starting to think. But then I, I was back with him in about a day or something, and I was right back pulled into it. A
4: friend had brought us in their truck just down the road into the center of Appleton. And we were just all sitting in their truck, and they were asking about what had happened. And then they had asked how her dad made her feel. And I believe she responded scared sometimes. And then they asked why. And she told them what happened the day before. That was the day that he um, put his black metal gunproof, bulletproof belt around my neck and cinched it up on that rocking chair.
2: So she told the police that? Yeah.
4: yeah. Yeah,
2: so she broke your silence really would you say or
4: yep absolutely oh yeah she doesn't know it she doesn't know that she's saved my life but absolutely she mm-hmm. will someday and i i stayed for years because of the kids and the like the financial aspect he always made it so i i could work but i couldn't work enough that i could support myself and the kids. i was never reliant on a man until after I had and then I I worked a lot less and I was like, yeah, maybe he's right. I should stay home more and I do have two kids now and he has a good job. So that's kind of what I did, put my head down. And then it's kind of the same thing as Eve. It was right at that same time in September that I did get an inheritance and then was like, well, this is what I've been saying the whole time. If I just had the financial means to keep my kids safe and have us still have, stability, then I'd leave. And that was just kind of like a promise I made to my dad that Mm -hmm. I was going to do what he always wanted me to do, Mm -hmm. stand tall and not be in a situation like this.
2: Yeah, that the silence for me, a couple of things. Um, When my daughter was, she was about six months old, I think she was in my arms and my firstborn. And I went to see a local lawyer in Camden. And I told her that I needed to get a divorce because my husband was beating me up. And this is 1990. And my daughter started crying while, I was, while we were sitting in the office. And she was crying so loudly that we just couldn't talk. And, and so I just said, I have to leave because we, we obviously can't communicate here. I'll come back. But then I was afraid to come back. And the other thing about my silence, and I think it was broken, is really with the media, When the arrest happened, and then Steve Betts from the Bangor Daily News uncovered my protection from abuse order and he splashed it across the front of the Bangor Daily News. And it was at the time the most traumatic thing that ever could have happened to me because everything was out there. And I I was after John's arrest, I felt so bad about it for him. And I I asked, like, can the caretaker, can I get him some chicken soup? I mean, I was I was devastated and I, I was not about to leave him at that point. But by splashing that out there for the details for everybody to see, it just, it made a big difference. Like I couldn't really go back to him because now my friends and my family and everybody knew. And so it really was a breaking into the silence in a really, in a really powerful way. For me,
0: as far as the kids go, I've been torn in not wanting to say anything publicly because I don't want them to be affected by stigma. I don't want to, you know, air dirty laundry and bash their father, which they've told me they're afraid I might do. But on the other hand, I also want to help change the system so that they can be protected going forward and also, you know, their children and others can be better protected so they don't have to go through the same stuff that we've all been through. And also just personally, I know that it's helpful and empowering to me to be able to talk about these things.
2: That's a very good point you make, Eve, because a lot of women will say they want to join us, but because of their children, they they don't feel like they, they can break their silence. What do I do
3: as as mom, not only
2: protecting him from
3: whatever emotional abuse his father will submit him to, but how do I keep him from becoming someone like his father?
2: And Allison, it sounds like some of that stuff seems might be familiar to you that Sarah was talking about. <clears throat> yeah,
4: absolutely. My reasoning behind doing things like this, ideally, are to keep me earth. ideally, for when he gets out.
2: How do you feel that this is going to keep you safer? <sighs> Through all the times
4: that this has happened, and either he's left or I've left for however long, we've always gone back together, and I've never shared the whole truth or anything, for that matter, with anybody other than we had an argument. I just feel like I'm saying and voicing all this. I feel like I'm furious that I don't want to be back together with him because, again, I haven't seen him since his arrest. I mean, aside from seeing him in court, like I haven't spoken to him. And that's always been what gets us back together is speaking to him. I just feel so unsafe that I'm trying to just voice and do anything to just maintain my safety so I can be here for my girls, because there isn't anybody else to take care of them.
3: I was the same way, Alison. The more people that know, the more people that have my back.
4: I feel like my story is probably more real to other people than other people would ever want to admit, because I was that person that always shoved it under the rug and it's not that big a deal. You know, it's gonna change, it's not gonna get that bad. And I just would like to think my story can reach other people.
0: I counted last night, I know 38 friends who either have been or are in abusive relationships. Just local ladies, 38 of
2: them. And many of them have been strangled. The more of us that join up and talk, the more people will recognize how big a problem this is and how it does cut across all demographics
3: his family is trying to do everything they can to stay neutral. And for a while I was accepting of that, but what I came to realize is that neutrality is silence. He was on the front page of the paper twice, once when he was arrested and then when he was sentenced. The number of people that came out of the woodwork to say, gosh, I had a situation with him, Either professionally or personally, or we always knew there was something comforting at the time to know that I, I wasn't alone. Little surprise that people didn't come forward sooner. But I also wonder if I would have heard them if they had. I went through several therapists throughout my relationship with this man. Anytime a therapist told me that this was not a healthy relationship and I should get out, I would find another therapist.
2: Allison, if you had a friend right now who was in a relationship like you were, what would you say to that person?
4: I would just make my presence with that person known, check in more often if I knew or was suspect of that. That's something that I didn't have throughout that. Like I could go like almost a month without talking to anybody, just me and my personality. I don't think my family thought it was out of the norm if I didn't text back. Or if I just texted back just like a a one word. But yeah, my sister would probably have been the only one that would like check in after a couple weeks. It was pretty easy to shut off everybody and isolate. And that's exactly what I did because I ended up
0: with next to no friends. I reconnected with some old friends that I had to write off completely. And I've had to apologize to them for having done so because he didn't like them. So it's it's great. I have a, a wonderful support network and we have each other's backs. It's a real sisterhood. And I really had missed that.
3: I feel like it's opened me up to, to other connections as well. So, for example, his ex-wife and I have become very close. One of the things that I just adored about him was that he never spoke ill of his ex-wife. Now that I know her and have spoken to her, the things that he put her through during that divorce just blow my mind. And I'm witnessing the same things now in our, our court situation that he did to her. One of the things that I love is that she calls me her sister. And Aww. she said, much like men who go to war together call each other brothers Aww. and you know, soldiers call each other brothers, I'm going to call you my sister because we have lived through the same war.
2: I really subscribe to the talk to your talk to the exes. Did anybody at the Knox County courtroom, like prosecutor, DA's office, anybody, did you feel like anybody heard you or cared what you said?
4: Um, I mean, that's a it's bold to say that no, that they didn't care, but I sure don't feel like anybody pushed for anything that I wanted or that I felt like would help me because I felt like there was a lot more that could have come of Steve's had they not let him just take a plea deal and be done with it I was right there would like you, willing you. and they said that they didn't have enough to like prosecute for the felony strangulation and it, it just it blew my mind I was like how not I, you have on paper twice
2: would these you pictures would you have wanted a trial Allison would you have wanted to testify
4: I was ready to do that I felt prepared and I was real scared to actually look at Steve and say any of the things that I said, but I would have done it if it meant my life. My just felt like my life was it was my life on the line, and I just felt like nobody really understood that that's what it was. Right now, he's in jail, so I feel real safe. I can sleep at night. I'm not listening to diesel trucks drive by and looking out the window to see if it's him. I just felt like if I, if he had more jail time, I would have testified I would have done anything just to give myself and my kids a chance, you know, to get on our feet again. And, I, and we don't have that chance because he'll be out in 30 days.
2: Did they care about what you had to say about it and the details of what you went through? Do you feel that you had a voice in that?
3: I definitely did not have a voice in that. And as a matter of fact, the assistant DA at the time, who was in charge of the case, stepped up to me in the courtroom and looked me in the eye and said, I know that you don't agree with what I'm about to do, but this is my choice. Who was that? Chris Fernald.
2: Do you know that he just got a promotion?
3: I read your letter this morning and I am seething.
2: What do you have to say about that?
3: My interaction with the DA's office was terrible. And the excuse they kept using is that we're overloaded, we're overloaded, we're overloaded. And so again, you're a number and we're just pushing you through the system. And I had a conversation with our current DA after her election. I invited her to coffee one day and we had what I thought was a great conversation where she admitted to me that because my perpetrator had never, he didn't have any priors. He's considered an upstanding citizen. He owns his own home. He owns his own business. He's um, not known to use drugs or alcohol, that they push him through the system. He's not a bad guy. This is an isolated incident. Let's move on. And we had a folder inches thick with evidence that any, you know, a, a trial would have been a much, much better outcome.
2: Did you want the trial? Did you I want did want the trial. trial. Did and, you tell the DA that you wanted the trial?
3: Yeah. yeah.
2: Were you willing to testify at the trial?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I had a list of people that were willing to testify, including his ex-wife.
2: I got a call from Stephanie
4: the day before each of the two court dates, and that was it. I don't feel like I was involved at all. I, no. <laughs> Especially when the first one, she, Stephanie herself advised me that I not come and just stay home. I don't need to come there and have to see Steve. And then that particular day was the day that they were pushing to Senate Steve. And that I said, I just didn't agree. So the judge pushed it out another 30 days. And again, I didn't hear from Stephanie until
2: the, the day before. And who's, who's Stephanie, just for this show? The, uh, victim's witness
3: advocate? I think the hard part is that I had to be my own advocate, but I didn't know how to do that because I don't know the process. So I was learning as we go. I'm grateful that I had a lawyer who was very helpful through that process. Again, it was the state versus my perpetrator. I really had nothing to do with it and neither did my lawyer, but he came to the courtroom with me. He made sure that I was aware of when the dates were and what they were
2: about. You were paying her for that, right? Uh, yeah. You were paying her for that? Yes. So someone who wasn't paying a lawyer would not have that information? Correct. Do you think that it would be nice to have somebody in the DA's office who sat down with the victim and explained the process, maybe gave a dictionary t- d- definition, a good definition of all the different terms, like deferred deposition, what all those things mean, and what you, like, really to, to tell you what you can expect? Do you, do you, do you, Allison? do you think that would have been helpful for you? Yeah, because when she told me
4: a lot of things, I was googling them (laughs) after I got off the phone with her. Because I'm like, I don't have a clue what this is. I did not have a lawyer for this. Yeah, I had no idea about any of it. I was every time I just it was new. I've never been through any of this, and yeah, I wasn't didn't have anybody to help prepare me for any of it and what to expect. (laughs) I mean, aside from what New Hope for Women helped me with, and that was helpful with the paperwork, but.
2: How do they expect us to know these legal terms? We know it's our first time through this process, yeah. and we're traumatized also because we're dealing with just coming out of this relationship.
3: Yeah, and PTSD and all of those other things, and yeah, yeah. And then the other piece that that really bothers me to this day is that when he was going through the criminal case, I could do a a witness statement or a victim statement, I guess, but if I chose to do that, I would have to read it myself in court. If, And then if I wasn't going to read it, say my lawyer or Stephanie was going to read it on my behalf, it had to be submitted ahead of time, which meant he and his lawyer could read it.
2: Oh my God, really? Before
3: the court date. So they could base their case on everything I was saying. So Stephanie reached out to me and said, well. Chris. Christopher Fernald, right? Fernald. He wants to see your statement before we go to court. And so I sent it and I got a phone call right away saying it's seven pages long. And I said, oh, what?" Well, that I had a lot to say.
2: Yeah. How <laughs> many years she, were you with this guy?
3: Four years. Okay, well,
2: Seven yeah. pages for four years. I mean,
3: not a lot. Might take me 20 minutes to read. So she said, no, it has to be one page. And I said, wait a minute. I can't say everything I need to say in one page. And I am my only voice. And you never told me it had to be one page. She said, if it's any longer than that, the judge will stop listening to you. Hmm. So we get to court. Once I've read my statement, that's it. I go sit down and I'm silent. Now he, my ex, had his lawyer. He had eight people in the courtroom that stood up and gave testimony on his behalf and 13 letters written on his behalf.
2: And you couldn't respond to anything that they were saying? My
3: voice, that is it. And then he could have as many as he wanted. We were
4: in one of those rooms off to the courtroom before we went in. And I was sitting with Nicole and my friend, chair of and it was just us three in there and stephanie was like popping in and out and nicole from new Hope for women was writing down like little bullet points because i was like i'm gonna get up there and i'm gonna freeze like i'm gonna be so nervous and then i remember stephanie came in and she was like if you're gonna be reading off of anything you've written i need to read it first Mm
2: -hmm. why why i know i thought we were gonna go to trial and then all of a sudden uh i think stephanie said we have a dispositional conference. I didn't know what that meant. And then she said, you don't need to be there for that. And then my lawyer, Chris McLean at the time said, I think you might want to be there. So I I made arrangements to be there and come to find out that was the sentencing date. I had no idea that was going to be the sentencing date. So I'm in the courtroom and it's all happening so fast. And they come up to me and they say, this is the plea deal and you can speak if you want to. We were married 29 years. We're doing about 29 years of abuse. I had a piece of paper. I was scribbling for like, I had like 20 minutes to do that to prepare this victim statement. Not that it made any difference. I mean, of course the deal was, you know, the deal was already done.
3: When he was sentenced, the judge said in her in her words before she gave out the sentence, she said, this is the, the worst case of domestic violence that I have ever seen. And she said, and I've seen but, death. She said that at least the woman who died, it's over for her. She doesn't have to deal with any more domestic violence. And she pointed to me and she said, you will have to deal with him for the rest of
2: your life. And, and how much time did he get in jail for this worst uh, domestic violence that she's ever seen? 20 days. You have been listening to Let's Talk About It, a conversation with survivors of intimate partner abuse hosted by me, Patricia McLean, founder and president of the nonprofit organization Finding Our Voices. If you have a comment or question for me or my guests, send an email to hello at findingourvoices.net and I will try to address it on a future episode of this show. You can also send me confidential emails at that same address, hello at findingourvoices.net. And if what we are talking about sounds familiar, if you have an intimate partner who makes you afraid and or controls what you say and do, or have a friend or family member you suspect is going through this and want to know what you can do to keep them safe, call your domestic abuse hotline. The victim advocates who take the calls believe you and understand it. In Maine, that number is 1-866-834-4357. The national hotline is 800 799 The Finding Our Voices Sisterhood of Survivors is at findingourvoices.net. And remember, love should feel good. And I don't need
4: your strength, I've got my own. You're a bully. You're
0: just a bully.